Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 937, air date April 22nd, 2021. Good morning, everyone. This is Dr. Shiva Ayadur. I'm with Scott Jensen. Um, we'll wait until people join Scott, but we're going to do a live. And Scott and I are just going to talk about the immune system medicine, what's going on. And it's probably going to be uh, the beginning of a set of discussions Scott and I will have, but uh, we'll wait for people to join, Scott. We've got about, uh, uh, it's in the morning, so we'll wait. But Scott, I think what would be interesting is if we just uh, educate the audience on your background, my background, you, were, you know, it's technology. We were just talking about, uh, you know, doctors and technology. And maybe we'll just start with that. And I'll give sort of, you know, that one, my first job was working at a medical school when I was a 14-year-old kid. But go ahead, Scott, you were just sharing your background, your introduction to technology. Go ahead. Well, you were challenging me, Dr. Shiva, with uh, StreamYard and Facebook and going live and all that. So I was going to tell you that it was in the early 1990s and I was in a clinic that had several offices and our office did not have fax machines. And we were at a board meeting and the administrator said, we've got an extra fax machine we're not using in this office. Do you want one in your office, Dr. Jensen? And I said, oh, heavens no. I said, we've got more than enough technology. We would never use it. And uh, so <laughs> went ahead and put it in our office a couple of weeks later, just because they didn't have any use for it at all. And we started to use it. And within two months, I couldn't fathom not having the fax machine anymore. And so I think that's that's a little bit of my history. I've not necessarily been the quickest to embrace technology. And then once I do, I say, gee, there really is a lot of value here. Well, what year was that, Scott? Was Probably that I'm going to guess 1990. 19, see, that's interesting. So, um, you know, when I was 14, you know, I, I was one of those kids who liked uh, to work a little bit. So I started working full time as a research fellow at a medical school, what's now known as Rutgers Medical School in the heart of Newark, New Jersey. And I was doing some of the early work applying computers to look at SIDS data, you know, sudden infant death syndrome data. Uh, at that time, the uh, Martland Hospital and UMDNJ, which became Rutgers, in Newark had some of the best time series data of 48 hour sleep data of babies. So I was doing analysis to try to predict if you could correlate sleep patterns with an apnea. But I also got recruited with another challenge. In those days, you remember in the 70s, most doctor's offices, you had a secretary and she had the typewriter, she had the inbox, the outbox, right? They would write these things called memos. You remember them? The yes, mail system. It was the bulwark of office operations. So anytime you wanted to put a proposal together, the letter was the medium of communication. But all the things we see in modern email systems came from that physical archetype. I was asked to convert that entire system to the electronic version. So in that, this is 78. They did simple text messaging on those computers, but not converting that entire desktop. And, and I remember that was a challenge that was given to me. So my customers were these secretaries. And I remember a doctor coming over to me, he goes, why do we want to do this thing called email, right? <laughs> he said, everything works fine. I just go over to my secretary. I dictate a letter. She types it up. She puts it in the drafts folder. I redline it, right? And she sends it out for me. But that was the state of, because I think uh, it's interesting, the medical profession, uh, even up until I think 2000, it said, medical doctors were the last to really adopt technology. It's an interesting psychology uh, of why that occurs. But I think the unfortunate thing is all of us have become secretaries now, right? 
we all have to read our emails. We all have to process before we sort of outsource it to somebody. But um, I think technology is an interesting thing because um, over, I mean, you you practice family practice medicine, right, Scott? I think be, uh, valuable. I was just asking you, do you practice today? And you still do, right? You're not just someone running for governor. I'm not just a guy who ran for Senate. I also, um, you know, do science every day. So I think maybe. Yeah, I'm a full-time, I practice medicine full-time. Uh, one of the things that happens to a physician is as you age, your patients age as well. So my practice has certainly shifted more and more to internal medicine with a lot of coronary artery disease, congestive heart failure, diabetes, hypertension, a lot of those things. And then because I did a, a Bush fellowship in dermatologic surgery, I do a fair amount of surgery on lumps and bumps and melanomas and basal cells and squamous cell cancers. So it's, it's a wonderful practice, but I do work full time as a, as a doctor. So, 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 Scott, most of your patients then you've had for from I don't want to say cradle to grave, but you've had them for a long time as a family pra pra practice doctor, right? Correct. Yeah. And I think we want to talk about a couple of topics today. I think when we connected one is, you know, on the immune system. Uh, but if we before we go there, I think it'd be interesting to talk about uh, health care. I know you're running for governor when I ran for Senate here one of the models that we proposed was that when you look at the entire healthcare model, you know, I live in Belmont, Massachusetts here. I had a doctor for nearly, you know, many, many years. I'd go to him and knew me, he knew my family. It was a direct relationship. So it was basically, you had me and my doctor, there wasn't all these intermediaries. I think I paid out of pocket, you know, for some copay. And now with insurance, there's so many layers that's been built that the relationship probably that you offer to your patients is probably rarer now than it was before because of all the layers that people have to go through. Very much so, Dr. Shiva. In fact, I wrote a book and published it about five years ago called Relationship Matters. And mm -hmm. the subtitle was uh, the, the, basically healthcare is fracturing because the relationship is fractured. And the third party being introduced into the equation doesn't promote good quality care. Well, it's interesting, Scott, because uh, when I, I, you know, the reason way I got an, interested in medicine, you know, you know, I'm a systems biologist, but I got interested because when I was a kid in India, my grandmother, you know, those small villages in India had no running water, no electricity. My grandmother was a so-called healer, right? So people would come to her. She practiced a traditional form of medicine where she would observe your face. She would actually look at you, talk to you, and she'd figure out what were the appropriate. In those days, they use herbs and, you know, different formulations, et cetera. But one of the things that I got fascinated by in a field you may know of this called narrative medicine, which is the healing emerges between the doctor and the patient relationship. And there's been quite a bit of work. Some people call it the placebo effect, but I don't think it's really that, but there's something that emerges when the doctor connects with the patient and builds that relationship. And I think at the heart of it, that's where 80 to 90% of the healing should take place. You know, forgetting the awful things that could occur. Obviously, if you get involved in an awful accident and you need surgery, which I think modern sort of the conventional advances in medicine are phenomenal for. But the I think the guts of most of the healing comes from what you do. You know, it's a family practitioner connecting with the patient and having this sort of relationship with them. I agree with you completely. The And we have studies that have gotten at that. The immune system, for one, the immune system works differently when it's not stressed. When a person, I mean, there was a study done many years ago about what happened to people in the U.S. military 
when they were undergoing change. And what they found was change, either good or bad, change influenced the immune system such that people were more susceptible to illness while they were being disrupted. When they were, if you will, at peace, comfortable with their environment, comfortable with the routine that they chose, they seem to stay healthier, at least in regards to respiratory infections like influenzas and colds and things like that. And I think it it doesn't really give us any definitive information as much as it gives us a little bit of insight into something that stress and anxiety and those kinds of things do matter in a very real physiologic way, even if we can't necessarily create a sequence of causation. What's interesting, uh, Dr. Jensen, one of the interesting things there's a paper, there's a, a systematic review that was done, I think in 1988, published, I think in Science, which looked at a, the history of what happens when people are stressed by isolation, social isolation. And that results showed that your body will actually create inflammatory compounds, um, particularly for people, um, and worse, and the, and, the, and, and, the, and, the, and the conditions that that creates social isolation, depression, when you're under that kind of stress, worse than high blood pressure, worse than obesity, and worse than smoking. So that was in 88, and I think in, in the mid 2000s, the work of Stephen Cole actually looked at it at the genetic level, at the, from a molecular systems level with humans and primates, and it showed that the body will actually upregulate in those conditions inflammatory compounds, and it'll downregulate antimicrobials, which your body is essentially a pharmaceutical factory in some sense. So you basically compromise your immune system under those stress conditions. And I think if we look at what's happening right now with policies that were imposed top down, um, we've created a very, very, uh, I mean, I, I don't think probably 50 years from now, probably some PhDs and MDs will get together and they'll do the research of the devastation it actually caused people's health. And maybe there'll be an economic analysis done with the lockdowns, what the benefits they were from a health standpoint versus not locking down you know, on the immune system. I think you're absolutely right. Again, I, I did not read that article in Science in 1988, but I think there's some value there because one of the things that would have come out of that study is it would have been done within the context of unbiased interest. I'm afraid that over the last 15 months, so much of the, quote, research, I hate to speak so strongly, but it almost resembles garbage because you know, physicians and scientists, we're pretty skilled at understanding how research works. And if we want to end up at a certain end point, we can make that happen. We can dry lab experiments. We know how to craft an experiment so that it gets us what we want. And I'm so afraid that a lot of what we've been coming forth over the last 15 months, it's really been sort of almost predetermined. And I think that a study from 1988, or you mentioned uh, Stephen Cole, I think. I have yeah. not read this work as well. But this is one of the big flaws of our policy determination over the last 15 months is we've been willing to throw out all that we were leaning on for the prior 10 to 20 years in favor of some sort of rush job experiment that says, see, masks do a tremendous job of knocking down respiratory virus. But we've been doing these studies for years. And that wasn't the conclusion that had been reached. I mean, we did swine flu in 2009. We did SARS in 2002. We had plenty of motivation to do studies. And it wasn't like 
18 years ago or 10 years ago, we were sitting on our hands. So that's been a big concern of mine, Dr. Shiva, is that what we've come up with over the last 12 to 15 months hasn't really been our best work. Well, I, Scott, I, 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 I think since we're having a conversation about, you know, one of the things we've built here is a movement we call Truth, Freedom and Health, meaning that without the freedom of open discourse and conversation and debate, which is a foundation of science, you can't practice the scientific method. And therefore, you get garbage, you get scientific consensus, which leads to sort of the fake science, which then essentially eludes what's really right for our health. Uh, Dick Lindzen, you know, uh, professor at MIT, he did a lot of the work, a great applied mathematician. You know, Dick was the one, when I, I did this video, you know, exposing sort of the climate change nonsense, right? That it's really about increasing carbon credits to make a few people trillionaires, that it really has nothing to do with fundamental science. When Dick came out with that as the only professor at MIT and wrote to, uh, I think Trump at the time, 140 professors at MIT lambasted him. Now here's a guy who got accepted into the National Academy of Engineering I think the youngest guy, great guy. So Dick and I were having a conversation. He said, you know, what's happened is that science has become now the oldest profession in the world. And only someone only needs to read, read, read the Bible to find out what that is. But the interesting thing is what he shared with me was that big change in science occurred in 1970 when the Mansfield Amendment got passed. The Mansfield Amendment was an interesting amendment. You know, we had a huge military budget prior to that, right? Let's say in the, during the Vietnam War. And a little piece of that was given to some crazy scientists just to go do work without any restrictions, pure basic research. After the passage of the Mansfield Amendment, uh, what ended up happening was that little sliver, which was small relative to the military budget, but it was a lot, which they really gave to really good scientists. It was sort of open science, you know, whoever was good, not just focused on grant writing. Well, all of that money went under the NIH and NSF. And in the 70s, I think, was a turning point in many, many things in, in the United States. It was a consolidation and centralization of science, centralization of many, many different fields, education. And so what Dick pointed out was that a lot of that money, when it went there, the NSF and the NIH became highly political institutions. And science essentially, so if you wanted to succeed in academia, you had to, all the really great scientists who were looking at radical stuff or, you know, out of the box thinking, they all got thrown out. And what you ended up getting today is you have lemmings who essentially, if they don't toe the party line, literally the party line, you're out. And I think that's what's happened. And I think we're, we're unfortunately in the last 15 months, we're seeing um, sort of the culmination of all of that that started in 1970. So when you take something like masks, which is one of the areas we wanted to talk about, we just finished, and I'll send this work to you, but um, you know, in 19, in 2000, I went back to MIT 2007, I created a technology for modeling molecular pathways on the computer. So we could mathematically do some large scale mechanistic understanding of different phenomena. So for three years prior to this, we actually had modeled all the molecular pathways of periodontal disease. And we'd looked at 700 of the microbes in the mouth. So we have a beautiful mapping of all the molecular pathways that are involved in periodontal disease. And we know that there are three microbes uh, P. gingivalis, including one of them. Uh, and these three microbes upregulate what are called virulent factors. And those virulent factors, uh, if they're at high levels, you will get, you know, inflammation of the gums, you will get uh, tooth decay, and you will affect the immune uh, health of your own uh, internal systems. So what we did was we mapped out all the stuff. It's a very nice piece of work on showing the 
etiology of periodontal disease at the molecular level. More recently, when this stuff started happening with sort of this diktat, everyone should wear masks, we said, well, what happens when you put on a mask? So in the mouth area, which is a very sensitive area, it's where we have the most number of thermoreceptors, when you put the, when you put the face mask on, in this area, um, temperature will rise. That's one phenomenon. And, and the other phenomenon that happens is pH will go down because you start mouth breathing, saliva gets reduced or more acidity develops. Well, those two phenomenon are very powerful forces that manipulate the microbiome in your mouth. And guess what happens? Those three bacteria have a higher likelihood of increasing. So we have the molecular systems understanding now, by the way, no, you won't see this coming out of MIT, Yale or anywhere because none of those guys, if they publish it, would ever probably get, they probably all get axed and probably called down by the university presidents. But when you connect that causal thing to what dentists are now seeing, and I'm sure you're probably seeing this where people are coming up with increased, people who never had gum inflammation, people who never had uh, tooth issues. So, so what we're trying to do is to educate people, forget, yes, there's a civil liberties issue on masks, but if you, even if you apply science, the masks have a direct effect on oral health damage. And, and you know the oral health, and maybe you can speak to this, how important it is to the rest of the body. The oral systems connects to your you know, relation to a cardiovascular disease, uh, brain health, et cetera. Interestingly enough, uh, before I went into medicine, I was in dental school. I was president of my dental school class. So I, oh, spent, I spent a fair amount of time dissecting uh, head and neck in gross anatomy, as well as uh, studying uh, the physiology of the uh, oral microbiome. Wow. Uh, so this was funny when I was listening to you start talking, I thought, well, this is an area I can speak to. <laughs> but there's no question about it. Uh, we oftentimes don't glamorize the oral cavity like we do, you know, the heart transplant or the bone marrow transplant uh, or replacing a joint. But if we're not healthy in the oral cavity, we introduce diseases and not just diseases, but as you mentioned, we introduce inflammation. And, yep. one, and I think a lot of people don't realize that they may not realize what a, a medical or physiologic cascade of events is. But if people just think about it as sort of a domino effect where you've got a bunch of dominoes set up and you just tip one, they all ripple along and they all fall. That's sort of the way the physiology uh, works for us in our bodies. And so if we introduce something that's going to be adverse to either our immune system or our overall level of inflammation in the oral cavity, it's going to have consequence in places we can't necessarily recognize and are subtle. So we'll miss it because those aren't going to be the things that are going to be glitzy, glamorous, if you will, grant ideas for money. So we will trundle along in this murky area of unknown and we won't necessarily recognize it. So I, I think you're absolutely right, Dr. Shiva. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the interesting things, Scott, is I, I, maybe I can find it here. I'm trying to, I didn't prepare for this, but the oral cavity. So I think what we've tried to do is to educate people. And I think this is where I think, um, I think, uh, you know, as a family practitioner, as you, and, and as a systems biologist, I think we can serve to uh, we can do a whole follow-up on this, but I just wanted to share with you, I think I can bring this slide up here. Um, this is, uh, I, give it, I gave a talk recently, we, you and I should follow up on this when we have a little more time, but I gave a talk on this, just looking at the, the, uh, uh, the different areas, and I'll just give this up right here. But you can, uh, can you see this, Scott? 
Yes, I can. Yeah. So we can see that the mouth directly has effects to many, many different diseases from Alzheimer's. So we can look at, and these are the two bacteria in the mouth that affect, that have been shown to affect Alzheimer's, uh, periodontitis, caries, diabetes, pancreatic cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, colorectal uh, cancer, esophageal cancer, cystic fibrosis. And obviously, I think most cardiologists know this, that when you're getting a lot of tooth work done or what's going on in your mouth directly affects cardiovascular disease. But, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, mainstream media doesn't talk about this, a role of what happens around the mouth. And what we did here was, I think I can show you this. I think you may enjoy this. In our um, research, we literally mapped out all of these molecular pathways. But what we've shown is, let me see if I can bring this up. Uh, yeah, I think it's a little bit before this. But we also showed the actual mechanisms of how all this works. So when this bacteria, P. gingivalis, goes up, which can occur when you have high acidity in the mouth, high temperatures, this directly affects bone tissue, which then goes affects bone loss. In addition, the bacterium P. gingivalis also affects the immune system, which then, uh, you know, or can perturb it, which you get the cytokine storm, which means you're perturbing, you're creating uh, inflammation conditions in the mouth. And then this bacteria at high levels will also go affect your soft tissue, which leads to gum tissue loss. And this is directly related to what many of these, uh, many of the, uh, you know, uh, uh, folks on, folks are starting to see on, in, at, at, you know, from the dentistry, where they're seeing this phenomenon in patients that they've never seen before. So I think one of the ways that we can educate people, um, Dr. Jensen, is to move this discourse to the science from a systems approach, because I think we'll have an unfair advantage in talking about this. And I, I look forward to doing more, you know, getting more deeper into this, because I think one of the critical things that we're finding is when you take a reductionist approach, which is what modern science has unfortunately become, they don't want us to look at the whole elephant. They just want us to look at a part. And I think that's how they create garbage science. So you can look at one little part and you can say, okay, if you put this covering here, it's going to solve a public health issue, forgetting that you may actually be now creating a whole you may actually be creating a cascade of new public health issues that was never purposefully never even discussed in the discourse before you even impose something like that. To that point, Dr. Shiva, I think that I have oftentimes spoken to different audiences and I have said that one of the most fallacious policy drivers for politicians and bureaucrats was when they chose elevate one illness above all other problems. And I think we saw that with COVID. Mm -hmm. There was no advanced recognition of the unintended consequences and even the perverse incentives that we would create from a societal and a payment perspective in terms of overdoses and suicides and the number of people that interrupted their chemotherapy for their cancers, the number of undetected cancers that when they were detected were later in the game because the typical screening processes were abandoned. I mean, this idea of elevating one illness above all other problems and literally ignoring the issue of collateral damage is the ultimate reductionist. You're simply reducing everything to one thing. It's all about COVID, nothing else matters. That's why we're not diagnosing flu, because we're not looking. That's why we're not diagnosing this, this, or this, because it isn't this, this, or this. It's all COVID. 
I just got done seeing a patient that broke his elbow hmm. uh, a couple hours ago. And I looked at him and I smiled. I said, well, if you don't mind my saying so, I think we can confidently say that this is not COVID disease. <laughs> what did he say? He laughed and loved it. And he said, you can't say that very often these days, can you? Right. No, but I said, I think we can honestly say that here. Well, I had a friend of mine in the National Guard and he was sent to New York, you know, to go into apartments to get people out. He said everyone was being uh, labeled as COVID. There was a guy in the alleyway who had been shot in the head. He goes, that's COVID. So that's what was occurring. And, you know, in March of last year, Dr. Jensen, in March of 2020, uh, when I saw this, and I have a lot of, you know, colleagues of mine at MIT who are these, you know, esteemed guys in the immune system. And I looked at this and in November of 2019, I had just given a talk at the National Science Foundation up in Indiana on a modern theory of the immune system, because those people who study the immune system, they know that the reductionist way we looked at the immune system uh, goes back to 1915. It's all about white blood cell count. It's as though only if you have the antibody, everything's fine. And it's, and I, and it's almost like you're looking at an orchestra and the orchestra conductor only plays the oboe. And if he plays the oboe, you're saying it's a great piece of music. The immune system is a much more complex system. There's interferons, there's you know, the microbiome, there's many, many pieces of this orchestra. And I think part of this reductionism that's been pummeled on since uh, probably 1970 again, since the, uh, you know, the acts that were passed for national immunization has all been about the antibody. But the reality is we have many of these other subsystems that support the immune system. So I think part of the entire aspect is medicine needs to move from this uh, area of reductionism to the aspect of looking at the body as a system. So when, when we start putting something here, what does it do to the entire infrastructure here? And I think what you just shared, given this overemphasis in 2020, when I saw this occurring in March, I did a tweet, been thrown off Twitter, you know, recently when I started exposing the, the election issues. But in 2020, I did a tweet which said, this fear mongering will go down in history uh, intended to push mandated medicine, to destroy economies and to essentially suppress dissent. And what was, un so that was in 2020. And that's, and when, when I did that, I started doing some videos. I realized people didn't understand the immune system. I got a call from a senior White House, one of the leading people that was advising Trump. He goes, Shiva, please keep doing more videos. He goes, people don't understand the immune system. He goes, right now, Trump is following Fauci unilaterally and health policy is going to, he says, I, I believe we're headed for a grand depression. So that's when I started doing those videos, Scott, to educate people. But I think to your earlier point, there's been a deliberate model to do garbage education of fear and to, and to not educate people and to put the entire model on fear. And the only line that I could draw from that, Scott or Dr. Jensen, when I connected it was to, if you look at the economic model, in since 2012, Pfizer alone, one company, lost $25 billion in revenue. So in, in 2012, they made $65 billion. In 2020, they, they're down to $41 billion. So they've lost around $24 billion in revenue because the old pharmaceutical reductionist model of a single molecule drug is failing. They're not able to find any more. So there's a huge incentive for these guys because they spend at least three times of R&D on marketing they need this next marketing model, which is fear, uncertainty, and doubt, which is what we're witnessing here. So my analysis leads me to follow the money 
and we'll see that there's a huge monetary incentive just by one company because they have to increase revenue. And what better way than the jab, because a jab is purported just in 2021 to increase Pfizer's revenue, just one jab, right? $15 billion. So there's a huge monetary incentive right now because big pharma has actually been failing for the last 20 years because their single molecule therapies no longer, you know, even the FDA is not even allowing a lot of the drugs that are coming up because of side effects. To that point, I think another thing happened in the 1970s and the, in the 1960s too that, that did impact. I don't disagree with you, Dr. Shiva, that dollars and government grants and government intervention has a profound impact. But I think the other thing that happened is medicine became more arrogant. I think mm -hmm. there was this idea that if you didn't have MD behind your name, you really weren't qualified to understand it or speak to something scientifically. Some of the best voices that I have listened to over the last 12 months, I'm sorry, they don't have MD behind their name. They're very bright people. We, we've seen people just clamor to go into medicine, to get into medical school, to get an MD behind their name. They get there and within 10 years, they're disenchanted, disillusioned, and burnt out. I think when Christian Bernard did the heart transplant right around 1960, and we started to and then in 65 in the U.S., we had Medicare and medical assistance. We got an influx of dollars. Medicine pretty rapidly moved from what might be called a calling to a high-status, high-paying job where you didn't necessarily have to earn trust or demonstrate scientific thought processes. You got it automatically. And so I think that physicians are part of the problem this year, like, I never would have guessed we're entrenched, uh, we're divided. When I used to go in the 1980s to Grand Rounds, Grand Rounds was not something where we would sit around and have a kumbaya moment and hold hands. Grand Rounds was a vicious process of let's dig in and figure out what's causing this problem. My wife was the subject of Grand Rounds during one of her pregnancies. We've abandoned that willingness to have the discourse now it's, you said the wrong thing, you used the wrong word, you dared to say mask, you dared to say hydroxychloroquine, it doesn't matter what we're talking about, and you are going to be punished, you will be re-educated. To me, this is a big part of what's happened. And mm -hmm. I don't know how we walk that back. So I have a little bit of pessimism about what the future is going to look like. Well, you know, it's really interesting to say this, Scott. When I, you know, when I saw my grandmother who had no degrees, tattoos all over her arm, heal people, you know, she practiced a very different form of medicine, right? And I, that's what got me interested in the systems approach to medicine. And I always wanted to be a doctor. And what's fascinating was, Scott, as I went through high school, you know, you have to apply for your MCATs and all those things. Uh, I saw, this is, this is in 1970, 76, 77. I saw, and, I, and, I, and my parents, you know, we had lived in Patterson, New Jersey, very one of the poor cities, and then to Clifton and then to Persephone. In the last three years of high school, my parents moved to a very wealthy neighborhood uh, because they wanted to get the better public education system. And in that neighborhood, and I, I think I was top one of the top first or second kids in the class, but what I noticed was there were kids who were way at the bottom and their parents would just push them to go into medicine because it was a career. It was, so I remember this transition. 
And I remember when I got to MIT, I thought I wanted to do medicine. I was dissuaded because I found that medicine didn't take the body as a systems approach. But I saw many of the push in medicine was to just get that MD behind your name. And it sort of really, you know, got me really revolted. And you'll see this in not only in the United States, around the same time in countries like India. Um, you know, I had cousins there whose parents would push them to get, you know, and to go to medical school. These kids didn't even, weren't even qualified because the MD degree, I think to your point, had this stature that you were essentially seen as a god. And, but I remember friends of mine, few of them at MIT, one of my friends, Mike McHugh, who ended up becoming a great, he's, he's up in your neck of the woods, up in Minnesota. But Mike was a hardcore engineer and he would talk about grand rounds. And I think he was in the earlier part, how he was a serious guy. I mean, he would go through problems and hash it out, but it was about solving a problem. And I think you're, you're hitting on a very important cultural point because what happens is the arrogance took over and the problem solution thing went into the background. Even I have friends of mine who are, you know, I consider reasonable friends who are MDs, but if I start critiquing them, right? Hey, what about the fact that we don't treat the immune system? What about this? You can see their quills go up because something deep in them has been trained to have this deep level of arrogance as though they're better than everyone else. But back to your point, well, what you just said about science, you can ask a lot of physicians to define science and they should be able to give something, but they may not. But what people should recognize about science is you're talking about observation, measurement, hypothesis, create an experiment. Are you right or wrong? Go back to the drawing board. That's what science is. It's just, it's this thing. But anyway, you mentioned before about this reductionist view of the immune system. Here's, here's something I wanted to introduce while you're talking. Two diseases that I, I was perplexed by, I've always been fascinated by them, and I think it has to do with COVID-19, is the whole concept of it's not just about B cells. It's not just about T cells. It's not just about vaccines. There's this other thing called disease resistance. Somehow it's embedded within our genome. And the two diseases that I talk about, but if you go try to read about it, there's an absolute dearth of, of data about it right now or discussion. One of them is how Afro-Americans can be susceptible to sickle cell disease, mm. but if they're not if suffering from sickle cell, but instead a carrier, they've got some sort of intrinsic disease resistance to malaria. This mm. is it. And the same thing with leprosy. If you go back to the days of Jesus and you look, you wonder why didn't the whole society, the whole population have leprosy? Well, studies indicate pretty clearly that for probably 90% of people, there's a disease, an intrinsic disease resistance where you couldn't get leprosy if you put it on your cereal in the morning. What does that come from? Where is that? That's what our minds have to question about the immune system. Like you said, Dr. Shiva, it's incredibly complex. If we reduce it down to B cells and T cells, we're missing the big picture. We're mm -hmm. missing all this. Scott, did we lose you? Just briefly, I think. I was just finishing up my remarks. I'm afraid that this reductionism is allowing us to ignore these these big picture things like what does intrinsic disease resistance do? Is it embedded within the genome? How does mm -hmm. it work? Are there are, are we looking at surrogate markers and we're missing the critical intermediaries along the way? I don't know that. But yeah, 
in 2018, uh, so the current model of the immune system, many people in the field of emerging field of systems immunology say it's based on a 1915 model, right? It basically, you have the innate system and you have the adaptive, it's just this two box model, that's it. And they, most MDs, unfortunately, because they haven't, uh, either because of the training or because of what's going on, there's a whole system called the interferon system, which now we know is a missing link between the innate and the adaptive. Then we have the microbiome, the virome, and the gut brain axis. So it's a very complex system. But to your point on this concept of disease resistance, I think it's very closely related to over evolution. If you believe in evolution or grand design, it doesn't matter. Whatever designed us, evolution or otherwise, uh, embedded in us the concept of resilience to be able to resist uh, things long term. And any system in nature, man-made system, uh, uh, if you're an engineering systems person, um, you, you embed in that system the concept of resilience, which means it's supposed to be able to take a hit and come back stronger. And it, and it has features in there that were designed to resist, you know, certain things, right? So uh, a, a bridge will, you know, a bridge, if it's just constructed purely straight or, you know, stiff, it's going to fall apart if the wind hits and it starts it moving. It has a certain amount of resilience to it. Skyscrapers, right? In Japan, they build them on rollers right now, right? And the body has the same concept of resilience. And it's, it's um, there's a very interesting paper I'll send to you called stress inoculation. And what the paper says is there are three phenomenon which determines your ability to handle stress in the immune system. One is genetics, one is epigenetics, and one is stress inoculation, that your body awaits to be stressed. Um, it awaits a certain amount of stressors because that actually turns on a set of genes. So, so what, uh, some great work in Japan shows that when you get exposed to a virus, as it goes through the innate, the interferon system actually can upregulate about a thousand different genes, which remodels your DNA, which, which means that disease resistance, as you point out, is embedded in there to protect you against many other viruses long before antibodies even kick in. Exactly. So, so I, I think that's why I think the systems approach to the immune system is extremely important. And getting back to your earlier point about, I think last year when I was running for Senate, I was going to talk and uh, some guy says, hey, Shiva, come come meet this guy. He's one of the leading guys at Harvard on something. I go, great. And he goes, oh, she, you know, she was talking about the immune system, da, da, da. He goes, there's many things. He goes, oh, so he goes, you don't believe in antibiotics. You don't believe in this. I go, look, what I'm saying is there's many things involved. And this guy started freaking out. I go, look, I go, you know what? You're pretty arrogant. Just because you come from Harvard and MD, you think you know it all. And it got into a pretty vigorous thing, but he got really angry that I did not bow down to him. I didn't have an MD, well, I have a PhD, okay? So I had a little bit one up on him, but still the level of arrogance there was supreme because I think it's it's sort of like Intel inside. It's put into people that once you get that MD degree, you it actually hurts the medical profession, right? Because people, they lose their openness to, like you say, when you did grand rounds, beyond prior to that, people actually were like engineering, right? You try to solve a thing, it was an exciting, thing you took you look you looked at every patient in a unique way it wasn't it was about the right medicine for the right patient at the right time so i think we've moved away from that and it's unfortunate but um but that's why i was excited that we connect scott i know a bunch of people across the internet are saying we should connect but i think these kinds of discussions taking a systems approach um, i think this area of disease resistance is fascinating because when you look at um, indians for example 
explosive amount of diabetes, right? Never heard about it when I was growing up. You know, everyone, I mean, I used to remember my grandfather would eat rice like this, tons of rice, right? But he used to work out in the fields. He got up at four in the morning, 93-year-old man, he'd work. So um, John Essigman, one of my former professors at MIT, he said, you know, Shiva, diabetes is not a disease, right? It's because people are changed their complete dietary habits. And it's in fact, the gene that exists in people from your population actually is for slow burning of food, right? So now when you eat, Indians are now in India, for example, you know, you have dominoes, you have highly refined carbohydrates. So he says India is probably gonna have 300 million people with cardiovascular disease. So the gene that we call a disease gene is a reductionist way was actually a gene that was created because when people used to migrate, they had less amount of food, it actually helped them burn, you know, stored fat very slowly. So I think the notion of these phenomenon that we call genes in the context of when they were created by evolutionary, you know, demands, we've taken them out of context. So what we think is a something called sickle cell anemia, it may have been profoundly valuable, right? To protect you against uh, malaria. And it's a necessary piece of, of evolution that, that people needed. But I, I think the bottom line, Dr. Jensen, I think what, when we want to talk about the um, interventions that people have proposed, you know, one size fits all medicine, everyone should get the same uh, medical approach, everyone should start putting on these things and as though this is going to protect you. I think in, whether we are pro-mask, anti-mask, pro-vax, anti-vax, whatever that is, I think in fact that theater is actually hurting even the discourse because it's not getting to the heart of, because you have the, you know, the Kennedy guys over here who've been talking about anti-vax and they make money off of it, right? And over here you have the big pharma guys, but that entire theater there has never got at the real issue of about boosting the immune system, about looking this as a system. And, and I think unfortunately in every area, everything becomes black versus white, left versus right, right? Uh, pro versus anti. And I think um, people are tired of that in a very fundamental way. I think people are worn out by it. So in some ways there's hope there because I think people are looking, I think people want a systems approach, Dr. Jensen. I think they're I looking think, for it. I think that's interesting that you chose that moment in time to use the word hope. Mm -hmm. If I were gonna build on top of your use of the word hope, I would say it's important for us to recognize it's really only been the last 60 years that physicians have become these demigods and that we've become so, if you will, certain of our rightness. Because if there's one silver lining to this COVID-19 pandemic, it may well be that we will press reset because we're going to see that policymakers and bureaucrats and, and a variety of people that weighed in, we're not looking at it from any kind of a, a bigger perspective. They were very much reductionists. I mean, you look at Neil Ferguson and what he did with his modeling. I think there's there's hope that we can encourage the masses. Don't be so reliant on the political appointed bureaucrat. Don't be so reliant on the person that's got MD behind their name. Bust through those walls. Realize that we've all got the ability to think and cogitate and come up with our own conclusions. I tell my patients every day, Physicians are very good at biology and chemistry and physics, but we can be pretty stupid when it comes to common sense. And we, we exhibit that all the time. And we need to remind our patients that it's really only been a 60 year phenomenon across the span of human existence. 
we've never done this before. It's probably not the right way to do it. Maybe now in 2020, we can, 21, we can be bursting forward and saying, we can't let this narrow myopic focus be the way we move forward because we are stymieing our potential for bigger understanding. We really are. Yeah, I, I think I think you nailed it, Dr. Jensen. So what you know, when I I know you're running for governor, by the way, everyone should know you're running for governor in Minnesota. And I'll, let me tell you what else, whatever I can do to help you. You know, when I ran for Senate, uh, typically people like us, scientists, doctors, physicians or people who who want to look at things a different way, we're not supposed to run the, the world of, uh, quote unquote, politics, again, in a very reductionist way in the last probably. I mean, it wasn't true when the founders where there many of them actually knew math and they knew what different things meant. They knew how to, there were blacksmiths, all different kinds of, of backgrounds, particularly founded in doing real stuff with their hands or looking at people and interacting. But I think when I ran, you know, we ran against someone called Elizabeth Warren, right? Here's a woman who's your typical Harvard professor, uh, used race to get in. Um, uh, and then we, more recently when we ran, um, we had a great campaign. At, uh, but the, the, the reason I bring that up is that the, the over the, I think this was not always true. The notion was if you did this, the idea, this reductionism also tries to bucket people, right? And it's a very powerful way of control. So in March of 2020, you know, when I put out that tweet and I started doing all those videos, um, I wrote to Trump. I said, look, please don't shut down the entire economy. Take a systems approach. You know, obviously the people who are uh, uh, affected, hurt. Yeah, you follow normal things, right? Quarantine. It's like grandmother's advice. But the other people, if you really want to help them, you know, there's things called vitamin D3. There's vitamin A. There's things that boost the immune system. And um, that letter, you know, his former wife delivered to the head of public policy had a long talk. I said, you need to get rid of this guy referring to the bureaucrat we know we're talking about, right? And Trump never did anything because I think this is a problem with a quote unquote, a billionaire. And I supported Trump, you know, gave money to him. And this is what's happening now. The problems of the world are becoming so complicated that when you start outsourcing, even like Trump did to a bureaucrat, you don't really know what's going on. And in 1960, you know, John Kennedy gave a very interesting talk at the National Academy of Sciences. He said, look, the problem with democracy right now is the problems of the world are becoming so complicated. And, you know, millions of people elected me and I'm sort of paraphrasing what he said. And but when it comes to decision making on complex things, I outsource it to you guys, a small set of people. And you could think about it now. So if you look at something like the immune system, you look at weapons, whatever the systems are, a person in, in, in charge there is outsourcing it, that decision making to maybe today on any one of these big decisions in academia, probably five university presidents can move the entire focus of anything in the world right now. And that's the consolidation of science that's taken place, that a very finite set of people are making major decisions. And so what, what came out of our campaign, Scott, was we had this theme, truth, freedom, and health. And it really was very powerful because we said the movements, for, even from a systems approach, the nerds were the ones who were into science and innovation, the truth seekers, right? And over here were the people with the 1A and the 2A, right? People called them quote unquote rednecks with wanting the second amendment and the first amendment. And over here were the yoga people, right? The earthy, crunchy granola people for health. And the point we have been educating people on when you take a systems approach, whether it be your body or politics, we have to integrate all these movements, the movement for freedom, protecting the first amendment, second amendment, 
is directly related so we can actually have public discourse to do great science. And from great science, we can actually get to real health, but without health, we can't fight for our freedom. So it's this point here, Yeshiva. Yeah. It's interesting, you quoted John Kennedy talking in 1960. Yeah. A few months later, Dwight Eisenhower was giving his farewell address. Yeah. And I will paraphrase him, but he said, there may come a day where our public policy is held captive to a scientific technological elite. Right. So here we are. We have this scientific elite that literally with, uh, in a moment can discard someone as nothing but noise or a distraction. We've got this technological elite that can shut you down, take you off this platform, that platform. We are seeing what Eisenhower said. And that even takes me back 200 years before when you look at Benjamin Rush talking about the need for a health freedom amendment because people need to have a freedom insured in the Constitution because Dr. Rush was concerned that there would come a day where people would lose their health freedom. And we're seeing that. So we'll have to have another conversation. In regards, in regards to my campaign, if people would be willing to go to my website and just watch our launch video, because I think it's an unusual political launch video that tries to create a very stark contrast between what was done and what could have been done. And the best way to get to our website is drscottjensen.com, drscottjensen, J-E-N-S-E-N.com. And yeah, that's how we're going to do it. If we're going to flip a blue state like Minnesota, it's going to have to be a very granular groundswell approach. And we're going to have to blow open the doors of groupthink and say, no more. We've got to let real science overwhelm political science. Definitely, Scott. I know you have to get going and it's almost 12, but everyone go to Scott, S-C-O-T-T-J-E-N-S-E-N.com. And Scott, I think in closing, you know, those in power do not want um, guys like us who came from the establishment speaking out against the establishment because people like us are supposed to have fallen in line by now and been arrogant, been part of their system. So uh, this is great. Let's do it again, Scott, but I wish you well. Uh, let's keep in touch, you know. Thank, Thank you much. Be well. Thank you. Let me. Do you want me to end it, Scott? Or you, do you want to hang out? Okay. So now the next thing is I will just go ahead and see 